This is episode 56 of the Strength and Success Show. We, of course, record live every Thursday at 1.30. Uh, just waiting for Riley to hop on here, and I'll have her do the join request live. This one is episode 56. is titled, Know Where You Are. We're going to speak on self-awareness a little bit. She just joined, and there's my request. She's with the quickness today. So we'll go look at this in a second. Maybe two seconds. <laughs> there she is. Oh, I got to adjust because I got to cut my head off, apparently. <laughs> how you doing good how are you good how's the pup um she's currently enjoying a bunch of peanut butter in her little kong treat so she's well entertained who doesn't enjoy a bunch of peanut butter let's be yeah. real here. yeah she's well entertained right now but i can't guarantee for how much longer <laughs> well we might have to have a, a special co-host edition with the dog <laughs> all right so this is episode 56 know where you are we're going to speak a little bit on self-awareness and what that's about what it brings to you uh, this is an interesting subject is know where you are because in order to get where you have to go you have to know where you are and i break down self-awareness into two categories there's internal and extrinsic self-awareness uh external is what too many people focus on and that's what people view you as or see you as or think about you and so you present yourself to them rather than the internal which is a little bit more important as far as goal achievement and life achievement is living up to your own personal standards, how you view yourself, where you see yourself at, what are you disappointing yourself, what behaviors you wanna change or habits you wanna create and build, you have to know where you are first to get there. And that's where people tend to lose sight is, especially with social media, we get all too consumed with how everybody else is doing and what they're seeing and where they're at. We lose sight of oneself. Uh, at some point, everyone's gonna go through this where they have this, this wake up moment. It's usually a little more gradual building to that, but there's the, the blow up that builds to this where you start to see yourself in a different light and realize that maybe you've lost your way, you've lost your focus. So it's always good to be a little bit intrinsic and think about, am I living to my standards? Am I the person who I want to be? Are these behaviors that I'm doing matching who I'd like to be? Am I at my ideals? And if not, what can I change, increase or decrease to get more of, to be more within line with who I want to be? <laughs> Someone left a, uh, I think Andrew left a comment that said, can we just talk about Riley's traps instead? We were just talking about this, how every podcast, it's like, everyone just wants to talk about my traps. I'm <laughs> I don't even see it. Where's that at? Did it go by so fast? I don't know. It was a couple comments up. I can't scroll back. But um, you know, what's funny is I haven't even lifted yet today. So I take this as a great compliment. Oh, I don't know which Andrew this is. It's not on mine. Um, Oh, he's from, uh, I used to lift with him at Rockwell. Ah, well, Andrew either doesn't follow me, he's private, or he's blocked me. So, Andrew, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was kind of like thinking about this a little bit today in like a different way um, than what you're talking about now. But I do think that um, we allow other people and social media to kind of influence how we respond to things, how we process emotions, what we think that we should be feeling or think that we sh what we think we should be doing kind of. Um, really weird. I mean, I have like my best uh, thoughts in the shower apparently, but I, um, I got a tattoo when I was 18 that says, take every chance and drop every fear, right? Super cliche, super white girl. Um, I really don't love it now just because it's, it's a little bit blown out, first of all, but it's, it was just kind of super, super cheesy <laughs> when I got it. So uh, it is what it is. But I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about how like when I was 18, that was very much how I was. Um, I did whatever it is that I wanted to do. I felt whatever I wanted to feel. I did not take into account really 
not in a negative way, but I didn't really take into account what other people had to say about what I did with myself or my life or whatever. Um, and I was like that for a really long time. Like I've moved, uh, we've talked in like way previous podcasts before about how like I have packed up and moved states multiple times because I was like, I'm not happy here. This is not, this isn't me. This is how I, I shouldn't, uh, I don't think I should be here. I don't feel like I want to be here, blah, blah, blah. So I've changed my life. Right. And then it seems like over the last like five years or so, um, when getting more, I hate to say it, more popular on social media, it feels like I kind of lost a little bit of that fearlessness that I had when that tattoo happened or when I was making a lot of these moves and making a lot of these changes. It was like somehow I just lost that. And I don't know if that's because I was more, I knew that more people were paying attention to me or whatever. I really hate talking about like social media, like I'm a, celebrity or something I don't feel that way but you know more people notice you and when you put your stuff on social media more people uh, pay attention when you put your life on there um, granted I don't put a whole lot on social media aside from clients and training my dog now um, and like a few things that I want people to notice but it's really only like a small fraction of my life that I put on there and that's for a reason um, and that's because I don't necessarily want everyone else's input on what I do with my life because that is something that people get lost in right so if you post something online and you're really proud of it or you really really like it someone immediately responds and is like i hate that um i get this all the we get this all the time with like even something as small as energy drink flavors like uh i know trevor and i have both posted an energy drink and we've been like oh i love this flavor and without being prompted or without asking someone will send a dm and be like that's my least favorite flavor cool so uh that doesn't make me change my mind because it's your least favorite flavor this is my favorite flavor or whatever, you know, something simple like that. But it seems like social media uh, or even just, you know, being around like a tight knit group of friends, they can influence your decisions, your behaviors, um, what it is you like or don't like. It can even influence like how you feel about things. Um, if you are going through a tough situation or you're going through something where you're feeling things and you ask your friend for their input and they tell you something opposite than what you were initially thinking, you may shift your focus to what it is that they said versus actually feeling your feelings the way that you are wanting to or needing to. So self-awareness is really, really important and noticing that it's your self-awareness. It's not your social media followers. It's not your friends, it's not your family. Whatever it is that you want to do in your life, you have to do for you. You have to make those decisions for you and not necessarily give a fuck about what anyone has to say about it. Um, that was the original intent of that tattoo when I was 18 was like, I'm not, I, I give zero fucks about what people have to say about me. Um, if something makes me happy, I'm going to do it. If something doesn't make me happy, I'm going to cut it out. If I don't enjoy that friendship anymore, I'm going to cut it off. Whatever it is, that's, that was the initial intent that I had with this tattoo when I got it. Um, kind of lost that along the way, but I'm getting that back. So I enjoy that about myself right now is that I'm getting that self-awareness back and allowing myself to feel the things that I need to feel, allowing myself to be happy in the ways that I want to be happy and doing the things that I want to do. Um, so every single day when you wake up, you should make decisions for yourself based off of what it is that you're doing, not based off of what someone on social media told you you should or shouldn't feel, or not based off of what your friends or your family told you, or whatever that may be. Like, these are your choices. You have to live your life. So if you don't have the self-awareness to say, yeah, someone thinks this about this, about whatever it is I'm going to do, but I don't care because I don't feel that way. So I'm going to continue doing this thing because I love it or because I want to do it, whatever, you know? Yeah, we see it all the time in this sport. You have to know oneself. We get it in, in such silly, minute ways where people get 
you know, they start bashing a federation or you use a mono and I walk mine out and I'm better than you. It's like, dude, it's your sport. We're doing this for you. And people will constantly look for approval and acceptance online. That's not knowing oneself. Are you happy with your result? Are you happy with your effort? Are you happy with your goals? And that's really what self-awareness is about, is not trying to please the crowd. Chances are these people don't matter in the long run of their life. Uh, I always say this, she doesn't like it, but people are transient. They kind of come and go through phases of your life. There's not a lot of people who are going to be permanently in your life for a very long time. They serve a purpose while they're there, and hopefully you serve a purpose for them as well. But you have to know yourself, really, and know what it is that you want from your life. You have to know what direction you want to go. And that's really just being self-reflective and saying, okay, am I living to the life of my standards or am I living life to somebody else's standards, somebody else's goals, somebody else's dreams? And like Riley said, sometimes you'll lose that, but sometimes you'll find that. There's little catalysts in life that will help you find that. What it is that you want, what's important to you, what's going to make you feel better. And that's where you're going to achieve your goals. You're not going to achieve your goals if you're chasing somebody else's dream, somebody else's passion. You're going to achieve them when it means something to you. And you can be reflective on oneself and say, okay, these are my standards. This is what I'm willing to accept. The people will work themselves out if they're not willing to accept your standards. This is even like really, really small in the sense of like, um, like clients will ask me what meat they should do. And yeah my decision to make that's your that's that's the client's decision to make so generally i will always say well which one fits your schedule better which one would you have a better time with like it's that's a very small minute thing compared to like what we're like the big topic that we're talking about but that also goes into like your self-awareness like do you know that you would be happier doing meet one versus meet two then do meet one instead of meet two um it's just very small things if you're asking if you're asking like your friends for your their opinion on something, but you already kind of know the answer or you kind of have an expected outcome from them, you already know the answer. Like, um, I gen like I run everything by Melissa. I talk to Melissa about like everything. And generally if I'm asking her a question about something, it's because I already know the answer to it and I kind of need it to be reaffirmed, but you should be able to be affirmed enough in your own feelings that you can say, okay, this is the right decision for me or this isn't the right decision for me. Um, I'm going to make it on my own instead of relying on other people to validate your own feelings because your feelings, your feelings are valid the way that they are. You don't have to have someone else validate your feelings or someone else tell you that it is right or it is wrong in order to feel those things or do those things. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I, I like the way you put that, that you're just reaffirming your own feelings instead of looking for a different perspective or opinion, reaffirming your own feelings. It's important to feel your feelings. Feel your <laughs> all right what kind of questions do we got today okay first question how to work through burnout after a meet this is a great question that we actually get pretty frequently riley has a topic up on a discussion up with the whiteboard on the culture page if you haven't seen it uh, are we on the metal straw kick again <laughs> riley once discovered she drinks better through a straw she's more likely to actually hydrate if she uses a straw it's a weird little thing but she doesn't but um this is <laughs> Um, burnout after me is, is a couple different factors. One, obviously we're pushing ourselves really hard towards the end goal, towards, towards the meat. And for some people that takes a lot of toll on them and they don't take the time to recover, they go right back to the barbell. They don't do anything different. They don't change anything up. It's right back to the grind. And that's the problem is they start to view it as a grind. Riley's talked about this a lot. And I've talked about this a lot. I don't like to have someone go right back to a barbell. I will include two versions of, without barbell and with a light barbell like SSB or high rep stuff just to give them a challenge. I like to push conditioning the first week after. I really want them to miss the barbell. I want them not to have it for the week for one, unload their joints, unload their mind and let them actually miss the barbell. I was talking to Jordan Wong about this and he was saying that he actually feels so much better if he avoids barbell squatting for like three to four weeks after me because granted he's an 830 pound squatter like that's a lot on your back in sleeves but it's one of those things where 
you have to let yourself want to grow back to the barbell again. You're not missing anything by getting rid of it for a week or two or even three. You know, you're still conditioning your body. You're not detraining that effect significantly. But there's a when people do this is the wrong time. Like Riley talked about the last episode, like the week before meet is not the time to try strongman. It's not the time to tie weightlifting. That's what you don't do during week deload. That's what you do after a meet. After a meet is when it's time to like maybe put in some farmer's carries or a log press or something that you haven't done or like CrossFit Metcons or maybe learn how to do a snatch or clean or whatever. That's the time to do it because that's when you're just basically rebuilding base conditioning, slowly accruing more volume. And you can do some fun things like that because your body's not used to it. Try challenging things like give yourself a number, like 200 push-ups and set a clock and see how long it takes you to do 200 push-ups after whatever bench work you do or whatever. Like this is a time to try something new or something different or something fun to challenge you in a ways. People get burnt out because they're always focused on meat to meat to meat to meat to meat. And they never mix anything in there that gives them a little bit of variety. And that's what we say, variety is the spice of life. That's the time post-meat to have a little bit more fun and be less restrictive in your programming. You do not have to be hyper-specialized. You can work a little bit more in vertical integration of putting some other aspects in there that your body's not used to, and it will actually benefit you both mentally and physically to do those new tasks and work on the neuroplasticity and work on some type of expansion of your mind or expansion of your proprioception with your body to learn new skills. Yeah, um, I 100% agree. I think especially, it seems like especially when a lifter has a subpar meat or they do not as good as they wanted to do it seems like those are the ones that get burnt out because they are they're the ones that are so hell-bent on going back to the gym and like pring in the gym the week after their meet like you're already so massively fatigued especially if you failed lots of lifts you're so massively fatigued that like going back into the gym the week after the meet and trying to test your maxes they're probably going to be worse than what you hit than what you did hit in the meet because you're fatigued and you didn't let any recovery happen um so it's it's generally the lifters that don't have a great meet that feel the most burnout or they maybe like didn't hit the expectations that they thought they would um, because they are hyper-focused on like, well, I disappointed myself. So now I'm gonna have to prove to myself that I'm better and so, or they pick a meet immediately and then that stresses them out. So generally what I like to do if there is not another meet um, picked out in a short amount of time after that is I will either ask the lifter what it is like a new goal of theirs is I try to make it non-total related like a lot of women will say um, I want to be able to do pull-ups like you know pull-ups or I want to be able to do one pull-up or whatever it is I try to find what their goal is that doesn't have to do with their squat bench and deadlift or their total and um, I also like to program things for them that they enjoy um, and this is either through me asking or this is me either from me just paying attention to like what they said that they liked in previous blocks. Like if I know that someone likes, um, I don't know, chaos press or something. Like if I know that someone likes a weird variation like that and they don't have a meet coming up, I'll program that for them for the next block just to give them something fun and exciting that they know that they like to do to kind of take their mind off the fact that their meet wasn't the greatest. Mm -hmm. um, like Trevor mentioned, you know, if we want to do like a like a couple of weeks of strongman stuff or CrossFit stuff, then like we will absolutely do that, and it can just be fun and take your mind off of it, whatever. But it doesn't have to be immediately back to squatting, benching, and deadlifting. Um, the for, just like Trevor, the first week back, I don't program any barbell stuff, and I even tell the lifter like, hey, this first week back is like kind of optional. Some people will take the whole week off after a meet, and that's fine if they have no immediate like prep that they're going right back into. You can take a whole week off the barbell, like. I don't because I like to go to the gym, but, um, you can like, you can take a whole week off and like 
just do whatever it is that you want to do. If you like to run, you can go running. If you want to take a vacation, take a vacation. But like the first week back isn't necessarily required. And the first week back, it's bro stuff. Like it's dumbbell stuff. It's walking lunges. It's uh, goblet squats. It's dumbbell chest press. It's whatever it is, you know, simple stuff. And then the week after that, I'll slowly like start to incorporate the barbell again, but it's all high reps. Like it'll be sets of like 10 to 12 and like people are like, well, oh, the pump is insane. You know, it feels so good. It's so different because they were so deconditioned and it's a new challenge and that kind of stimulates their brain in a different way because it's not singles, doubles, or triples. It's tens, twelves, or eights or whatever it is. Um, but it gives you a little bit of a mental break, but it's, uh, if you meet, it's okay to take a little bit of a break. It's okay to not have the barbell on your back. You're not going to get weaker because you take a week off or because you didn't do barbell work for a week or even if you had a great meet just because you uh take a week off from the barbell doesn't mean that you're going to set yourself up for failure going forward so uh yeah spice it up have fun <laughs> spice it up all right okay does strap training for deads have a place or should most pulling be done without stop using straps in training <laughs> Personally, I don't like to use it on the main lift. And that's me personally. I don't like people to do straps on the main lift because it is a different pole position. It is a different pattern. And it can be a different form of overload. Straps on the deadlift for some could be like knee wraps on the squat for others. I've seen people who can strap pull 800 pounds but couldn't hold and pull 722 in meets. Uh, I see people knock out sets of six with straps, but they can't do the same thing with their bare hands. It's, it has a place if you want to do a specific type of overload at times. If you're getting closer to meet and you want to peak and you want to touch the heavy weight or maybe you have a tear in your hand, you want to spare your hand or you're doing really, really high rep work, sure. Can I say there's no place for it? No, there's definitely a place for it. But if you are relying on them or using them too often, you're going to weaken your position, you're going to weaken your skin, you're going to weaken your hands, and you're going to weaken your mind because what happens is when you go to grab the barbell and you have never held that weight, all of a sudden you have a grip issue. Be like, oh, I've never had a grip issue before. Like, first of all, you did. You just didn't get that strong before. You weren't that heavy. Like if you can strap pull 800, but if you can't hold 800, well, you gave yourself that grip issue because you relied on the straps. There's certainly a place for them. Uh, I don't mind if people use them on their opposite stance. I don't care. Like my main competition is sumo pole. Sometimes I'll strap up for rep work on conventional. I don't care. It's not my main lift. I don't care if I have the most ideal position there for my conventional as I do for my sumo. Uh, I don't like people relying on them. If you, if you go back and forth with like strongman and stuff like that, you are allowed to use straps in a lot of strongman events. So it is, it is good to be proficient with them and be able to use them. I will say I'm significantly better with straps than my conventional than I would my sumo because I never, ever, ever use them in sumo. And anytime I tear my hand and I have to, it just feels awkward to me because I never use them. But the, the more you can minimize them, the better your grip, your position, your hand's going to get. The more you rely on them, the weaker you're going to be mentally and physically. Simple as that. I, um, I don't like a lot of my clients know give them shit about it um generally like snatch grip deadlifts are fine um if you're going to use straps at least like make your top set with your bare hands if you're if you have like back off work or something and you want to use your straps after your back off work or after your main work fine i won't throw a fit but like if your main stuff is being pulled with straps i'm going to say something um and i don't like it and because i find that I find that people that are good at using straps also have a very different starting position with the straps than they do with their hands. Um, typically because you can make yourself a little bit taller or longer away from the bar. So the pole is a lot shorter. You're generally a lot more, uh, you have a lot more thoracic extension because you can kind of like not hold on to the bar basically, right? 
um, because you're strapped in there, you're not going anywhere. And then when they go back to pulling on the bar with their hands, they're like, I don't have any thoracic extension. It feels so heavy. It feels so hard. Yeah, it's because your starting position is different. Um, my starting position is different in the opposite direction with straps. So I just find that if you have to pull or lift a certain way in comp, you should be training that way, especially if you're getting closer to a meet. Um, I don't find much benefit to straps, especially like someone who pulls hook grip and they say, well, oh, I, I don't like to do hook grip with, um, you know, high reps. Those are also the people that always complain about tearing their thumbs because they, ne they never conditioned their hook. So if you're constantly doing your, your higher rep sets, like six or eight, whatever, with straps and not with your hook, your hook's never going to get conditioned because you're only used to pulling singles, doubles, and triples with your hook. So personally, I think the straps are stupid. Throw them out unless you're using strap, um, unless you're doing snatch grip, but that's just my personal opinion. <laughs> Gotten so cranky in your old age. <laughs> All right, what's next? Um, tips for tall people with upper back rounding in conventional. Okay, so your height doesn't matter that you're rounding in conventional because there are short people who round too. If you're rounding and you're having that, that kyphotic posture in conventional, chances are you probably have really, really, really tight lats and they need to be loosened and you probably have pretty poor thoracic mobility because of how, lat tight, how much lat tension you have. This is a mistake we see often where people round and then they try and do something like a front-loaded deadlift with the bands and they're, they're like working on lat activation. Their lats are always activated. They're always on because they're so shriveled and tight. You need to work on lat mobility. You need to work on your thoracic mobility more so than you need to work on the lat engagement in the pole. The problem isn't the lat engagement. The problem is they're already locked down so much you can't extend back thoracically because of how hard they're pulling your shoulders down plus the weight. So it's a matter of working on more upper back mobility and more lat length than it is to work on anything else. Your height doesn't matter that, that thing. So this is an area where uh, starting your deadlift workout with thoracic mobility drills is a great idea, but also working on something like, even though I'm not always the biggest fan of the Boris deadlift, Boris deadlifts are perfect for you because you can work just on that thoracic extension portion to develop that strength and build it like three or four Boris deadlifts for every one of, I actually just hate calling it the Boris deadlift. That's why I hate it because it's, it's not, it's the deadlift of the knee. If you actually read Shaco's book, that's what he fucking calls it. So if you call it the Boris deadlift, you're kind of stupid because the guy who invented it pretty much calls it the deadlift of the knee. You should too. Uh, that's just a respect thing for me. So the deadlift of the knee is one of the better exercises to do that with, to learn that thoracic extension. Um, there's nothing wrong with starting kyphotic. The problem is, is if you stay kyphotic, you're going to have a really hard time locking out the top. You have to learn how to create thoracic extension through the lockout to build a better deadlift position. You don't have to start with it, but you do have to finish with it. And that's where people go wrong is they start working on creating more and more and more lat engagement. But the lats are the reason why you're locked down in the first place. Loosen them up. That was the thing I wanted to touch on with this is like, what or like why necessarily do you think that your position is wrong? I guess, um, like Trevor mentioned, like starting kyphotic is essentially fine as long as you finish with thoracic extension. So I feel like there are varying degrees of um, rounding that are excessive and egregious versus quote unquote normal. You know, like everyone's normal is going to be different. There's a range, a range is, or normal is a range for most people, right? And that's the same thing with like knee cave, um, upper back rounding, whatever it is, hinging, all that, that there's a range that is different for everyone. Um, so I think that if you have a, if you have a relatively strong pole, it can always get better, obviously. But like, if you have a strong pole and it's already in that position where you're starting kyphotic, but you're finishing with thoracic extension, I don't necessarily think that's quote unquote wrong. It may not look the prettiest, but, uh, 
that's okay. You know, like we've talked about some of the strongest polars are generally kyphotic, like KK was kyphotic, Ed Cohn was kyphotic. Um, there are really, really strong. They also finish with thoracic extension. That's the thing. They start with the kyphotic rounding, but then when they go to stand up, they're not internally rotated and rounded forward. They are thoracically extended and they are locked out. Their shoulders are in line with the bar. They're not rounded forward or their shoulders are externally rotated. So I think that that really just depends on without knowing or what, knowing what your conventional looks like. I think that that's a range. Uh, one of the better examples of that is, is being completely kyphotic until the very end is Vince Nello, who was the first guy to pull 800 at 198 on a freaking stiff bar. And he was completely kyphotic for the last two inches and he would just thoracically stand up. It's pretty impressive. I mean, being kyphotic keeps your arms long. Yeah. Uh, so it makes it for a shorter pull. It, like I said, it's not the prettiest, but it does make a shorter, more quote unquote efficient pull. So it depends. The scientific. <laughs> well, yeah. um, Help with increasing SBD lifts, but not wanting to compete. Okay, interesting one. Um, I would just add in a little bit more specificity to the squat bench and the deadlift. I would prioritize the volume there, even if you want to compete or not. If you're trying to build your squat bench and deadlift, you probably have to prioritize the volume of your barbell movements. People will do things like one set of a back squat to like a heavy five and then move on to a bunch of accessories. Well, you're prioritizing the accessories if that's the case. If you really want to build your squat bench or deadlift, it should be more like five or six sets of squat bench or deadlifts and maybe two or three sets of an accessory that's mechanically similar. Build that pattern, build that lift, get more comfortable with the bar and spend more time moving more load because that's what's going to get you stronger. What I mean by more load is, you know, if you have a 225 bench press for five sets of 10, that's going to be a lot more load then five sets of 10 with, you know, 80 pound dumbbells. It's only 160 versus 220 pounds, 25, whatever I said before. It's a lot more load. It's a lot more building. You have to not be afraid of volume with the barbell. Whether you compete or not, that's how you build the squat bench and deadlift. You increase the volume of it. If you look at every daily undulating periodization program, it is a tremendous amount of specificity and volume with the barbell. Uh, linear periodization is pretty much the same way. It's just spaced over much more long periods of time. But the, the volume that starts the highest with the barbell with the lowest percentages, you know, it might be five. Ed Cohn's was like five sets of 10, uh, like squat bench and deadlift on his, on his main days. And it would shrink down to like three sets of five, three sets of three in the peaking phases. But it was a high amount of barbell volume. And even his accessories were barbell volume, bent rows, RDLs, good mornings, and so forth. So it's, it's understanding that if you want to get better at moving the barbell, you actually have to use and move the barbell. You know, dumbbell pressing can be great for stability and building pec size, but it's not necessarily building your big lift itself. It's just building the potential for it later with more pec size. So be, be more confident and comfortable with high barbell volumes because that's what's going to help you build the SPD. I also, like, even if you don't want to compete, your program can still kind of reflect that you're trying to um, progress linear, linearly and also peak. Like, if you, even if you don't want to compete, you can still routinely and regularly test your maxes to make sure that you are actually progressing your lifts. Like it doesn't have to, just because you're not competing doesn't mean that you don't have to, or that you can't follow like a standard powerlifting program. Um, so like Trevor's talking about, like you just, you follow like a linear based program and you're going to progressively overload to the point where, you know, like block one, maybe fives and threes and ones like standard five, three, one or whatever. But I would probably regularly, I don't know how regularly, but I would routinely probably push those numbers, um, you know, maybe like once or twice a year, if you're comfortable with like doing it that far apart, like every six months, kind of testing your max to make sure that you're progressing that way. But also like, you don't have to push a true one rip max to understand that you're getting stronger. Um, we see like a lot of volume PRs that are doubles and triples that actually project us past what our one rep max used to be. Or sometimes people end up 
doubling and tripling what their previous max was. So that's how you can tell that you're increasing your overall max and your SPD without actually pushing to a max single regularly. So I think that if you're following like a standard powerlifting program in general, you're going to eventually push yourself to that point where you're testing your maxes and you're increasing your numbers. Um, if you're just going in every day, every day and like being like, oh, today sounds good for a top set of five and like tomorrow sounds good for sets of eight. Like if there's no structure to your program, you're probably going to have a hard time progressing them. Um, it's, unless you're an absolute beginner and you can kind of just look at a barbell and get stronger at that point. Um, but as long as you're progressively overloading and like pushing yourself towards like the three, the triples and the doubles and the singles, you're going to see an increase in your SPD without competing. Yeah. Uh, let me just caveat what I said earlier before somebody jumps on my throat about the volume thing. You know, we're speaking in terms of someone who's looking to get stronger. They're probably not that strong yet or probably doesn't have a lot of muscle mass. That volume also helps you build potential muscle mass for later. When you get to a point where you have an 800 pound squat or a 900 pound deadlift or you know 600 pound bench press that's when volume stops mattering so much because at that point that level of strength your motor unit recruitment is so much higher you need less volume to keep getting stronger because that volume becomes fatiguing in the beginning stages if you're not at those not those specific numbers but if you're not like the upper echelon of strength volume is your friend if you got the upper echelon of strength volume should be used periodically just to build base conditioning but then it should be much lower in volume much higher intensity because you have such high motor unit activation but most people 98% of people who are competing aren't at that point yet. So this is a little bit longer of a question. Does width play a role in the deadlift? Does it make sense if more internal shoulder rotation to have a wider grip? Uh, okay, hold on. It's <laughs> kind of weird. Um, does grip width play a role in the deadlift? Does it make sense if I have more internal shoulder rotation to have a wider grip or to have a wider grip until rotation gets better. Does that make sense? Jordan's agreeing with the one set and done, but then again, Jordan squats at 828, so there is that. Uh, in sleeves. Um, the internal rotation, the grip width, I always tell people your, your most optimal grip width is going to be directly under your shoulders. That's going to be most optimal. That's not always the case, though, because proportions can play a role in there. When someone's extremely massive, they may need to grip wide. You look at all the strongmen who are 400 pounds, they grip almost mid-grip to snatch grip compared to a lot of people because they're so big, they're so wide, they have to go wider. The internal or the external rotation of your shoulder is going to matter a little bit less there. The internal rotation is going to allow you to elongate your arms, but if you can't maintain lat tension with internal rotation, it's probably not an ideal situation for you. If you're really good with lat engagement, the internal rotation is something you can get away with. Like when I showed Riley that video, she added it to her deadlifts and they flew up. It was a great position for her. She has really, really freaking strong lats and she knows how to engage them. Other people who do that tend to fall over and round up and get kyphotic and they can't do it. For them, they need to focus on the external rotation of your shoulders. So if you're just simply having a positional issue, I would worry less about the width of your grip and more about determining whether you need internal to lengthen your arms if you have great lat tension or external to hold that lat tension and be able to get that thoracic extension. It's not so much the width, just keep your arms out of the way of your legs. That's, that's going to determine your width as far as your grip width. But internal external is something you play with and think which is the strongest position for me to break that bar off the floor? Because the hardest part for most people with the deadlift is breaking the bar off the floor. If you can fly the bar off the floor, but you can't lock out, then it means you have a poor starting position. And it means you need to focus at that point on either external to get that thoracic extension or internal to lengthen the arms, but be able to get lat engagement. Neither is right or wrong. It's, it's an experimental thing of you trying both and see which allows you to lift the most weight or the fastest. This was actually Joey that asked. Um, and I know that Joey has a lot of internal rotation and he also has weak thoracic extension. So in general, I think for someone like Joey, who 
him having a more narrow grip is not going to benefit him because he's already rounded forward and he has poor thoracic extension. So he's going to stay rounded forward in front of the bar and not be able to get thoracic extension. So like for him, I would say, I wouldn't say like a wide grip would be beneficial. Like a wide, wide grip would be beneficial. Like what you're talking about, like a mid grip, but like a wider grip for him is probably beneficial because like you said, you get more shoulder external rotation and that can be easier to engage your thoracic extension if you actually have external rotation of your shoulders to start. Um, some people can, like I do, like Trevor mentioned, I do better with internal rotation and I can find the external shoulder rotation at the top to lock out. And that's something that I am able to find and that's fine, but not everyone can do that. So for someone like Joey, yes, I feel like starting slightly wider for him rather than a more narrow grip um, is going to be beneficial because then you can force the external shoulder rotation. You can start getting the thoracic extension and whatnot. But yeah, um, I see that a lot of times where people try to grip super, super narrow. Like I know that at one point you, Trevor, were gripping just one finger inside the knurling and that's where I was gripping as well. That's where I grip as well. And some people try to do that and they have like one or two fingers inside of it. And it's like, they're already, when they bring their hands in, they're already so rounded forward that they have no room to like find their tall, like upper back position in the sumo or even in conventional. Um, it's a little bit harder in conventional because your hand, your legs are in the way, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's trial and error experiment, whatnot. But knowing that this question came from Joey, I feel like, yes, Joey, you need a slightly wider grip. <laughs> the, the narrow grip. Okay, I'm going to be brutally honest here. The narrow grip came when Duffin was doing his 1,000 pound pulls because he was using 36 inch long straps, gripping the middle to flex the bar more and really thick metric plates. I'm sorry, really thick imperial plates rather than a metric. It created a lot of bar flex. Basically, he created a partial range deadlift pull to actually show a 1,000 pound pull. It was never with metric kilo, you know, uh, metric kilo plates. It was never with his bare hands. It wasn't comp grip. It was an exhibition lift. So people are like, oh, maybe I should grip real narrow again. We've gone to comps and as head judges, and it's the first thing I do is I cringe when I see somebody have that narrow grip because they always lose their shoulders forward every time because they're trying to add more bar flex and it's just, it doesn't work. Especially if you're using a stiff bar, it's not going to work. It's going to pull you out of a, a position. So. Grip for sumo ideally should be directly under your shoulders. Um, if you have a little bit of a wider base like Joey does, you can go a little bit wider. Uh, for my conventional grip is wider than my sumo grip because my legs are in the way. So I have to grip a little bit wider for conventional. I do um, inside knurling is that USAPL or grip LOS. Matt's actually mentioned the fact that they try and grip real narrow to add less range of motion and get more bar flex. Although you're not gonna get much flex at a stiff bar. Some of that though, Matt, is because some of the women who compete in the USPL might be like very, very petite. You see that sometimes where it's a very petite, small woman. She's like, she doesn't have a choice. That's one of the reasons why I hate the road bar because the, the knurling starts wider. So if I was one finger in on a Texas bar, I'd have to go two fingers in on the, on the road bar to have the same grip length. Now I actually start right at the knurling since um, surge because it just gives me a little bit more grip on the bar as the weights get heavier. But it's, it's less determined by your your uh, internal external rotation and more like the size that you are. Like you just get out of the way of your hands and, and legs. That's really what it is. Yes. Okay. Female with relative low muscle mass spend a large part of the year in hypertrophy or do two meets a year? I think that that was just like a generalized question. Uh, or <laughs> Female with lacking muscle mass do two meets a year? It says spend large amount of time a year in hypertrophy versus two meets a year. Oddly specific, but um, yeah, I think that they're they're trying to say like spend half of the year in hypertrophy to try to build muscle mass or do two meets a year. Obviously, if you're doing two meets a year, you're not going to be spending a, a huge amount of time in hypertrophy. You'll have a good amount of time, but um, I 
I feel like for some reason this question is like a black and like it they're they're expecting a black or white answer but I feel like they need both like this lifter needs both um if they're like a relatively new client or a relatively new um power lifter they're probably going to be someone who needs a lot of like accessory work dumbbell work uh like we've talked about in the past like when you're a newer lifter you need a lot more of that like muscle isolation to build like more of a solid foundation of strength so I don't think that spending a whole fuck ton of time at hypertrophy is necessarily going to be the way that I would go about it. Like I would personally still have the squat bench and the deadlift in there um, because it's skill practice, especially if they want to power lift, but then really put an emphasis on like the individual muscle groups, like building the back, building the legs, uh, triceps, those kind of things after their squat bench and deadlift work. You know, I don't know. I feel like this, I feel like this question is looking for like a very, black or white answer like no you cannot compete because you're not x amount of muscle or yeah oh i I don't know it was kind of a weird question two meets a year is about average for most people so i would say that she still could and and probably should do two meets a year so at least she has that testing insight but i think i understand what she's trying to say is should she focus primarily on hypertrophy work and i would say that you could but i wouldn't just like riley's saying i wouldn't just focus on hypertrophy work i would have it coincide you know, have phases where maybe your first block is predominantly hypertrophy. Oh, why can't I say it right now? Hypertrophy. <laughs> I'm not even caffeinated. Hypertrophy. There we go. Your first block could be that, but you still want to have the strength work like Riley said in there, but maybe it's only 20% strength, 80% hypertrophy. And then the next block might be 80% strength and 20% hypertrophy because you don't want to lose touch with that skill set if you're going to be competing. You have to maintain that that level of conditioning to the heavy loads and the neurological efficiency that comes with them. Anyone who's taken time away from the barbell back squat and has done things like just belt squats, leg press and hack squats can tell you when you put the barbell back on your back, it doesn't feel normal, it doesn't feel natural because you've lost the motor pattern. So you still need the skill. If you're going to integrate a system that combines both, increase your time and attention, this is a great utilization of things like tempo work, slow eccentrics, because you're stimulating a lot of hypertrophy, pauses because you're spending more time in the length and position under load as well as like things like 1.5 reps where you're in the most elongated position and you're adding more time and attention in the bottom position which is the most stimulation for size is in that stretch position so things like 1.5 rep squats 1.5 rep bench press 1.5 rep deadlifts they're brutal but they're going to give you that hypertrophy response within the same movement pattern as the actual competition lift and that way you can maintain the skill set with the barbell get some more time and attention for hypertrophy and not lose sight of either goal I, uh, I, it, I think it's fine to do both. Like it, you can practice specificity and you can still build muscle at the same time. Like that smaller frame women that I work with or ones that are newer, like they have one to two barbell movements a day. So that way they can practice the skill and get better at that. And then like three to four accessories that are just focused on just their quads, just their back, whatever it is like for the day. Um, so I don't, I don't think that it has to be one or the other. You can absolutely do both simultaneously. And if you want to compete, like Trevor said, you should be doing it twice a year. So that way you can get used to the environment. You can get used to how it is, um, whatever. So yeah, there's no black or white answer here. You can absolutely do both. I honestly read this as a little bit of a confidence issue of wondering if you're big enough or strong enough to compete or if you're going to be judged for not being very strong. And that's just not how powerlifting works. You know, no one's judging you for how strong you are. It's, it's you challenging yourself. Hence the point of self-awareness is you're looking at yourself and what are your standards? What do you want to achieve? Where do you want to be? And that's why you're doing this. Everyone's always afraid to compete. You know, uh, I'm not going to compete until I'm strong enough. I'm not going to compete until I win. I got news for you. If 80 people show up to compete, there's only one winner. That means there's 79 people who lost. That's not how this works, though. It's not the mindset of, 
I, I win or lose. It's the mindset of, did I improve? Did I do enough work? Did I get stronger? What do I need to do to get stronger? You know, it's, it's a matter of testing yourself within a competition, but it's not just the competition. Yeah, I, uh, a couple episodes ago, I talked about that where I like I waited probably too long to do my first competition um, because I was afraid that I wasn't going to be strong enough or like good enough or whatever. And like, realistically, I had a perfectly fine total. Like, you know, like when I started powerlifting, I had a perfectly fine total, whatever it is, like going in there and just being like, oh, this is my first meet. I'm just going to have fun and enjoy it. I waited too long and I put too much pressure on myself to be like a certain strength level or to be like hit a certain total. Um, and that just kind of like set me up for set me up for failure for the next couple of meets going forward. I'm in a better spot now with competing and whatnot. But yeah, you're uh, you're realistically, we're always going to not feel strong enough. Like we're always going to not feel like we're good enough, strong enough, whatever. There's because there's always someone who is stronger than us. Um, but you can't focus on that. You just have to like Trevor mentioned, you have to focus on progressing, getting better, doing better each meet or finding ways to like win in between each meet or at each meet. All right, what's our next question? Okay, what's your process for deciding on if you'll take on a prospective client? Uh, both of us have a questionnaire. They answer the questionnaire. And as long as there's not something that comes up that seems like an egregious red flag, I have a couple, you know, people who are just really egotistical. Uh, I've given an example of this before. That this guy who pulled like 705 hitched with straps was telling me that he wanted within one year to pull 900 pounds in the animal cage. And I'm like you haven't even competed yet. And he got upset that I told him that his expectations and goals were unrealistic. And I don't even think I've ever seen this guy again. He like unfollowed and was pissed off and mad. And I told me I was uh, losing out on the best athlete he'd ever seen. And like, that was my big red flag was this huge ego in the first place. Because <laughs> it's like, you have to be a little bit humble, but mostly it's a matter of communication. Not everyone is going to be a fit for a remote coach. Even if your in-person coach isn't exceptional, which is very often the case, you, you do need that accountability, that, that baseline building, that some level of, of community that comes with that for some people. Not everyone can communicate to you what they're feeling and how things are going or understand cues. You know, some people are a little bit more physically aware than others, but I don't look at your strength level as a barrier of entry. A lot of people assume that. Would you work with someone who only squats 300, who only benches 400? Like, that's not how this works. It's not a baseline strength level. It's what's your willingness to improve? What are you um, looking to do? Am I the best fit for you personality and coaching wise and so forth? That's what I'm more looking at than anything else is do we coincide and fit as far as what you want to accomplish and am I the person to help get you there? I have no problem recommending it to somebody else if I think their style or what they want to do is better. Sometimes I have people who come to me who are like dead set. I want to run conjugate and I want to use bands and chains. And I'm like, listen, I really don't want to do that. I don't think it's what's best for you. I'll recommend some conjugate coaches to you, but that's on you. You know, I don't, I'm not anti-conjugate. I actually have clients that are on a form of conjugation. I have like five. But I don't, when someone's telling me that's all they're willing to do and they have no mindset of flexibility and I don't think it's the best program for them because I think they need more specificity, I will be honest with them and say, hey, I don't think this is for you and I don't think I'm for you. Here's somebody else to work with. It's not a barrier of entry of strength. It's a barrier of entry of open-mindedness and willingness to work. Yes. My questionnaire definitely um, alerts me of like a few red flags before I like respond to them. Um, like Trevor mentioned, communication is a really, really big thing. If I'm sending you a questionnaire that has 13 questions on it and all of your answers are three words or less long, that is going to be a red flag to me because I, a big pet peeve of mine with coaching is when people send me their videos and they say nothing, nothing. You have nothing to tell me. You couldn't even like type out that you did SSB squats three by six at 75% today. Use <laughs> <laughs> your words, use your words. Yeah, so it's like, that's a, that's a big red flag to me is like, if you can't, 
if you can't take the time to like respond and be I, I guess serious about it or like if you can't if you don't care about it enough to give me a full sentence then like that's a big red flag for me I'm not going to initially dismiss it um, because I know that like depending on how you get my questionnaire it can seem like I have one on my website and I find that everyone that does it on my website always answers really, really short. So I don't know if like the question box is shorter on that one or whatever, or if it, it doesn't allow you to type multiple characters or whatnot. Um, so if you do the questionnaire on my uh, website, I tend to get shorter answers. And then I always follow up with more questions based off of what they said. Um, but ego is a big thing. You know, if you're telling me that you're the greatest or that you, you know, I've had clients in the past that I've turned away that have been like, I'm a coach and I really know what I'm talking about. So I just want to make sure that like, I'm getting the program written how I want it to be written and like things like that. And it's like, if you're coming to me for coaching, then uh, you're probably, I would assume looking for the way that I coach or like my philosophy or whatnot. And like, if you just want to pay me to write your own, to write your program the way that you want it, why don't you write your own program kind of thing? Like, you know, um, and generally, so whenever I get the initial client, questionnaire, I followed up with more questions based off of what they said. Um, and the last question that I always ask is like, what are you looking for me for in me as your coach? Um, because that lets me know what it is that they're kind of looking for either they will, a lot of people will tell me that they have like a psychology background. So they, they, um, uh, they connect with me that way. Um, some people will say that they are looking for the mental aspect of it because I have a psychology background. Some people will say that they just really like the way that they've seen their friends lift or other clients lift and whatnot. Um, but if they're, you know, if their answers are something along the lines of like I just mentioned, where it's like, well, I know what I'm doing. I just want a coach to write a program the way that I want it to be done. Or if there's a lot of unnecessary, um, if they're trying to dictate, right? If they're trying to dictate how it is that their program is written, if they're like, well, I can't do this. And they give me a laundry list of things that they can't do. And they're, and it's more like, I don't, I don't like doing front squats because I'm not very strong at them. I don't like doing inclined barbell press because I'm not very strong at it. And it's like, those are red flags to me too, because it tells me that you're not willing to put in the work on the areas of opportunity that you need to improve. So um, for me, I just ask a lot of questions. Um, the, like I said, the initial client questionnaire is like 13 questions long. I follow it up with at least three more um, once they give me their answers. And then from there, I can kind of decide if we're going to be a good fit or not. But like, honestly, if you can't communicate to me, I'm going to, I'm going to have to recommend you to someone else because I don't, I don't like non-communicative clients. Um, it just makes my job, doesn't make my job harder. If anything, it makes it easier because there's less thought that goes into it because I don't know what it is that you're doing or what you're not doing. Like if I, if you give me no communication, I don't know what's going well or what's not going well. So it's just kind of like a standard progression from there versus clients that are communicating with me. I can say like, okay, this movement worked or this movement didn't work. We need to change this thing out. This thing hurts, blah, 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 whatever it is. I can make those adjustments. Um, but if you can't communicate with me, I can't, can't really help you. So that's about it. Simple thing to ask for like a weekly recap and it could be as, you know, bench move swell. I feel like I could have added five to 10 pounds each set there. Squats were a real struggle. I had to actually lower the weight and those were good. No problem. Let's keep going. Like that's not hard to do, but people don't do that. And then they're like, well, this has been happening for weeks. Like you could have told me weeks ago, we could have worked on it. <laughs> so if you're going to work remotely with someone, it's less about what they can do for you and more about how you communicate to them because they literally, like Riley said, they cannot help you if you don't help yourself and communicate to them. That's the big challenge we face. With remote coaching oftentimes is people don't tell us things and we just assume or like riley said they just send the video it just says three by six 
of what? Am I looking at a close grip bench? Am I looking at a wide grip bench? Am I looking at a spoto press? What am I looking at? Because if I'm looking at a bench that's supposed to be paused and it's not paused, I don't know that because you didn't tell me what it's supposed to be. You know, use your words. It's not hard. Uh, we got a question here on the Inzer sleeves. Someone told me if I don't use the new Inzer sleeves, I'm at a disadvantage. LOL thoughts. Uh, the gear guys love the fact that raw people are, are thickening their sleeves right now and trying to get more of an advantage out of thicker, more dense sleeves. The gear guys like, it's only a matter of time before gear comes back. <laughs> Listen, compete how you want, lift how you want. If you're not in the money for first place anyways, you're at a disadvantage from everybody else anyways. You're not strong enough to even worry about that. This is such a minute thing that the five pounds you might gain on a squat even matters on the rest of your total. You need to focus on building your total above all else. And if you're going to get five more pounds out of an e-sleeve and you want to wear them, buy them. If five pounds makes the difference between first and second, buy them. If five pounds doesn't make that difference, you're not at any disadvantage. You're just lifting to try and get stronger. Here's where you're at a disadvantage for a lot of people. This is what I tell people. If you need assistance gear to put your knee sleeves on for training, they're the wrong sleeves to training because the point of training is to actually build strength and get stronger and not rely on such a tight rebounding sleeve in the first place. You're actually like when you lift in wraps, you're, you're weakening your bottom position of the squat because the wraps are helping out of the bottom position of the squat. So if you always train in wraps, you're going to get really beat. You're really weak in the bottom of the squat. Same thing if you're always training in the tightest possible knee sleeve or the most compressive and rebounding knee sleeves. I don't train in tight fitting sleeves. I train in loose fitting sleeves. I will compete in a medium. I train in a large because I'm training to get stronger. Same thing with the straps. Like Riley said, you're training to get stronger, condition your hand, condition your legs. You're only at a disadvantage if you mentally think you're at a disadvantage. Um, if you look at the, the higher level meets, there's some people who've taken to them and a lot of times they don't train them and they just train them in, in a competition or compete them in a competition, sorry. And they just get stronger otherwise. And there are people who have them on every single time just to squat 300 pounds. And it's like that defeats the purpose of actually getting stronger if you're relying on the gear to get you stronger. So it's not what I would consider a disadvantage or one that really matters if it's only five pounds. But if you want to have the best possible equipment or the best possible environment, then pony up, pay for it. No big deal. I'm going to be honest. I didn't like those knee sleeves. Um... I think that they're too, I think they're too thick. <laughs> like, I don't, uh, I tried to put them on, I tried to put Trevor's on, which are a size too big for me. And I like, couldn't move my leg. I was like, I don't like this. This is stupid. Um, I don't, I don't like knee sleeves like that. Personally, I feel like it would be a disadvantage for me to wear them because I would be uncomfortable in them. Um, I like to compete in what I'm comfortable in until I get in wraps, obviously. But like, um, I want to wear knee sleeves that feel good. And like Trevor mentioned, like he said with his, he competes or he wears larges in training and competes in small or in mediums. I wear smalls in training and I wear extra smalls on meet day. Not that, it, not that it gives me any pounds on my uh, squat per se, but they're just tighter and they feel nice. Um, but I don't like how, I didn't like how thick those insert knee sleeves felt like, it felt like balloons on my kneecaps and it was it just, I don't know. They were scary. And uh, Melissa actually got them too. And she was like, I can't get them off my calves. Like she had, she freaked out cause she was like, I can't get them off. I can't get them off. And uh, I just, I don't, I don't know. I personally didn't like the way they feel. I know that it seems like majority of people who are really into wrap squatting, like they only compete in wraps are the ones that really, really love the ins or knee sleeves because they're a lot thicker. Um, mm. And like, seems like they feel castier to me, I guess. Um, it's always the people that are in wraps that seem to really, really like those. Um, I'm not a wrap squatter yet, so I can't really say that I like them. But yeah, I wasn't a fan. So I put them on once. They were they were uncomfortable. Didn't feel good. Uh, I've kind of flip flop whether or not I wear them for competition or not. 
I don't know if the five pounds means that much to me. I'd rather just know that I got stronger, not that the sleeves got stronger. <laughs> if that's where I'm at personally. But I got them and I tried them on once. And like Riley said, the hardest part for me was actually taking them off. It took me all of two minutes to put them on. It took me about 12 minutes to get them off. And my forearm pump was so bad trying to pull them down my calf. And I don't even have very big calves. It was so awkward and uncomfortable. Uh, it definitely was a deterrent as far as training. Like, I wouldn't want to do that on a weekly basis. That's for sure. So I don't think you're at a disadvantage unless you consider that one. You know, five pounds is not a disadvantage because that's usually not the difference between first and second place anyways for the most part. But I think you should just train how you want to and train how you comfortably feel and enjoy the sport and do whatever you want to. It's not really that big of a deal. Yeah, I don't know. And uh, I know that they're expensive and they take a while to get here, so. I took four weeks from them to ship to me and they were like 140 something dollars and then there was like shipping fees. So I think all the other was like 163 or 158. Uh, not worth it to me. Sorry. My, uh, my iron rebels are $70 and they got to me in two days. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, should we do one more? Yep. Sure. All right. Favorite things to help teach or maintain brace in the hole and coming out of the hole. Say that one again. It cut out. Favorite things to help teach maintain teach and maintain brace in the hole and coming out of the hole. Gotcha. Thank you. It cut out when you first read it. Um, I have the video of this. I love this. The long one breath pause squat. Nothing teaches whole confidence. Nothing teaches whole tension like the one breath pause squat. It was something I got from Dimitri Klokhoff. He talked about it when he came down to the seminar because he had an injury into his back. And it was his way of learning to get confident in the bar again. I've used it ever since, especially when I'm peaking for meets. Um, getting confident, like it's literally exactly as it sounds. You take one breath, you go to the hole, you stay tight until you feel like you're going to pass out, and then you come back up. I will lose like 150 to 200 pounds off my squat when I start doing that. I don't mean literally lose it, but I mean like I will use 150 to 200 pounds less because when you're down there for like eight to 10 seconds holding your breath, one, you're learning how to complete, completely stay absolutely tight under that load. But two, you come up feeling so slow. The video will look different, but it feels so slow because your pressure is getting so high. It does nothing but rebuild your confidence and your position under the bar. It's the best way to learn how to stay tight. Because like Riley said before with the conversations of pin squats, people tend to just let go completely at the bottom and try and bounce out of the hole. And unless you have a high bar holy stance, that's not going to work. Or an oscillating bar with a plate spin where you can ride the rhythm of the bar. When you're trying to do that with a power bar that's clamped in and locked down, what happens when you bounce and you lose tension is you tend to fold it forward. Ironically, the question was about the knee sleeves. The funniest thing about raw squats is 80% of them are lost in the back, not in the legs. So it doesn't help 80% of the people who put them on in the first place. Build a stronger back, build a stronger position, get really freaking comfortable being paused in the hole for a long time. And Matt, who's joking here, he's got his meat coming up. He's going to get very familiar with them because he likes to squat high. <laughs> so anyone's getting flamed here, it's Matt. You're going to get ready for that one breath pause squat coming pretty soon, buddy. I'm pretty, I love those one breath pause squats. I'm pretty sure like, uh, for how I feel like the most that I've ever done is somewhere between the range of like 250 to 275. And that boy, howdy, that was hard. Yeah. Um, I'm about a 400 pound squatter. So it's like, it's very different. Yeah. I, I don't remember. I, I feel like it 275 may have been the heaviest that I took it. And I think I lasted like seven seconds or something. And then I was like, I'm going to die. <laughs> <I'm> gonna <laughs> I'm gonna die. <laughs> that yes. was the uh, Harry Potter like roller coaster where there was like I'm still on the motorbike and there's nothing holding me down. I'm like I'm gonna die. <laughs> Who chose that seat? <laughs> Who wouldn't want to choose the motorcycle? Come on. <laughs> I don't want to be in a pedicab. That's like sidekick sidecar. No, no. Who, who runs sidecar? 
someone who's not worried about falling out. <laughs> <laughs> details, Riley. Details. I'm living on the edge. All right. That's our, our show this week. Thank you guys all for supporting, supporting Culture Neutral. There's also the Cultivating Strength platform. You guys, if you don't want coaching, but you just need solid programming, it's in both of our bios. You can go to the Cultivating Strength on Train Heroic. Your first week is free. If you just want to try it, see how the program is right now. Uh, it updates every single week that we're on there. Uh, Culture Neutral, make sure you're following and support it. Make sure you guys share the podcast when it comes out every Monday. You can share this reel as well. It'll be on my thing. You can put it in your story. We appreciate you guys for sending questions, hanging out with us today, and asking questions. Riley, is there anything you want to add? Nope, that's it. <laughs> Dynamite. All right, guys. See you next week. Thank you very much. Bye.